0: Hello, everybody. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time you're tuning in. I'm glad you're here. Today, we're doing another episode previewing some of our incredible speakers at UXRConf. Today, we got a, a duo joining us. There's two people, and also from a company that has a, you know, following stuff. They have a very strong research practice. We've been lucky to have a number of their Teammates speak at UXRConf in years past, so we're really excited to have them continue the tradition. They're from Slack, so you know they're going to be good. Today we have Ashley Lageron, She's a staff quantitative researcher at Slack, and her colleague, Lucas Puente, who's the Director of Survey Science and Quantitative Research at Slack. Welcome, guys. Good to see you. Hello. Thanks for having us. Cool. Um, I'm pumped because... I'll be honest. I feel like I have not been kind and fair to surveys in my career. And I know that we're going to right this wrong uh, a little bit today, <laughs> but mostly mostly at the conference. Where I'd love to start maybe is maybe we, before we get into the survey stuff, tell me a bit about your journey towards where you are today. And we'll start with you, Ashley. How does one become a staff quantitative researcher at Slack?
1: Yeah. So, um, our journey, like me and Lucas, is kind of interesting because we were acquaintances like six, no, ten, like 10 years ago in a PhD program at Stanford, um, where we were both, you know, maybe pursuing a career in academia and political science. And um, both of us kind of took different paths, but I left the PhD program um, with a really strong love of doing research. That's why I joined in the first place. But I felt like, It moved so slowly, and it wasn't very team-oriented, and I wanted to just do things faster. So I left academia and joined a um, political kind of consulting company called Civis Analytics, where I worked as a data scientist, really focused on doing a lot of survey-based work. So I worked there for five years, and um, a couple of years after that, joined Slack as a quantitative researcher, where I've been for only six months, actually, but yeah, that was kind of my my path to this particular role.
2: Yeah. So like Ashley said, I, we have our, our common beginnings in this journey in, in grad school at Stanford. Uh, I left after she did. Um, I, I finished my PhD and then I realized, or as I was finishing up, I realized similar to what Ashley realized a few years before me that like a career in industry was a better fit for my personality type and the things that I get fired up about. And so then I I left after defending my dissertation and I joined a um, early stage startup called Thumbtack and I did research there for four years and saw the company grow a ton, did lots of different things and learned, the, learned a lot. Um, and then after that, I came to Slack. So I've been at Slack about three years and again, I've worked on a number of different projects and have had a really good experience. So excited to continue to work at slack for the foreseeable future
0: that's awesome the thing that really got me pumped about uh your your submission and you know (laughs) this often uh when when we are putting together programs i I look at this stuff and i'm like man i don't think i was very good at research right (laughs) and this was another one of these moments where i'm like i hated surveys i don't think i ever first of all if i did them i don't think i did them very well but I always thought that like, you know, what what could you learn from them? And then when I was talking to you both, I'm starting to realize, uh, actually, you can learn a lot from surveys. So maybe, maybe, I don't know. I don't know how you guys want to take this. But there's this common, I think, common thing in our space. Surveys are not really helpful for research. How do you want to dispel with this myth broadly? Like, what are we going to do about this?
2: I think surveys get a bad rap oftentimes because there's so many bad ones out there. And there's a lot of survey malpractice that exists in the world. And there's the like old saying, I think Mark Twain is the person commonly tr- it's attributed to. And I know where you're going with this. <laughs> I don't know if it's true or not, but the only thing worse, the saying is the only thing worse than no data is bad data. And I feel like that often comes with bad surveys. And I think, you know, in grad school, you learn all sorts of fancy quantitative techniques. But really the thing that I learned the most from grad school is survey and really more broadly research design. And if you can design a survey well, then you can get really good insights out of it. And if you design a survey poorly, you could do the fanciest possible thing, but you're just going to get junk back, right?
0: Mm.
1: It's so interesting to hear you say that Like, you don't think of surveys as being a big part of your practice or background because coming from the political side It's so incredibly fundamental to a lot of research that gets done that it's actually hard to imagine starting like as a researcher in a kind of political space and not having surveys be a really fundamental part of your work. And I think that a lot of people were obviously that, you know, worked in the political space like I did for a while. We're very like shaken by like 2016, and just like, oh my god, do we even know what we're doing anymore? <laughs> <That's the thing. laughs> I think that whole experience and going through that, it just highlighted that like the people that do quantitative surveys are probably most skeptical often of them because we know so much of like what can go wrong um, when you do get it wrong.
0: Yeah, I, I every time I think of like big surveys, I think about the the survey I get from like Air Canada after I fly, and they're like, "Will you please take forty five minutes and answer this seven hundred question survey?" Like, do you someone agree, very much agree, or disagree with the the beverages on the plane were cold? And I'm like, Oh eh, no, <laughs> maybe I'm not gonna do this. Um, <laughs> but it's it's funny, like it's it's just everywhere, right?
2: Yeah, I always my like example I think of in my head when thinking about like a common survey, quote unquote, is in the airport bathrooms where there's like a little iPad. It's like, or the bathroom's clean and then you have to touch the
0: iPad. I'm like, <laughs> that's disgusting. I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> that's really funny. And that's what we call selection bias. Um, exactly. So, you know, I, I feel like this is a really good opportunity to bring something up. Are you guys planning on talking about NPS at all in your thing? Because I because if you're not, I'd really like to talk to you about it now a little we bit. Were,
2: we were not planning on talking about MPS. Okay, cool.
0: Perfect. Because I don't, I, you know, maybe you were and then I don't want to give it all away. Um, I saw something really interesting uh, n- not too long ago. A picture of someone who had uh, it's clearly some kind of franchise restaurant or something like that. And it was like a thing where it's like, please give us feedback and rate your stay or, or whatever. And the th- the three options that they recommended were eight, nine, and ten. And nine and 10 were green and eight was red, right? Like, what did you have a good? And it's like nine and 10 mean good, eight means bad. Um, And so when I saw that, I was like, wow, that is really interesting what's going on here. And so tell me a bit about like something like NPS that's like a survey that's been ingrained so much. I think I understand a little bit of how that was originally designed. It was, you know, like, would you recommend a product for your friend? That means maybe the product's good, whatever it is. How do do you think of, how do you look at something like that and whether or not it's good anymore or how it was came to be or anything to do with that? Like, how do we analyze something like NPS?
1: I think with things like NPS, it's almost like they become difficult to get away from because part of the reason it's a valuable metric is that it's a benchmark type metric. And so, you know, it's almost like a bit path dependency at this point. You know there are some companies that it's almost like famous what their n p s score is, and they they talk about it publicly and then you know, if you're in that same field or industry, maybe you want to benchmark against what you know their public n p s score is and so even if it's not maybe the perfect way to measure whether something is popular or not, like I said, there's just a certain degree of path dependency for something that is like a benchmark measure, even if we would like to change it, and I don't think that just presenting eight, nine, and ten is really the, the correct way to measure. Do that. I have, I have a, <laughs> a sneaky suspicion
0: that somebody's bonuses were were dependent on what numbers came back <laughs> on that survey. I'm oh, sure. Yeah,
2: yeah. I think actually, like that—that's like a really good point in the path dependence side of it. The thing, so strongly agree with that point. The thing I would add is context really matters with regards to NPS. And so we work at Slack, which people have strong feelings about, sometimes positively and sometimes negatively. But at the end of the day, it's also an enterprise software tool. And one of the things we hear when we when we ask our users how they feel about Slack and ask them NPS questions in particular is like, I'm not having conversations about enterprise software all the time. And so we actually <laughs> we we heard that in like the early days of our of our NPS survey well before I, I joined Slack. And so then we updated our question to reflect that. So now the question reads something like, when discussing workplace communication products with a friend or colleague, how likely are you to recommend Slack? So at least mm. puts the user in that right frame of mind. And people still say sometimes they don't really discuss those things. And like, that's fine, obviously, but I think context really matters when you're thinking about surveys in general, but especially something like NPS, people, you think about the products you research a lot more than people that you're talking to think about those products.
0: No doubt. Um, I think like this concept of survey survey design, and I think also just in general, like do research design, I think this is, you know, to your point, the whole like garbage in, garbage out kind of mantra of if you're not thinking carefully about what information you think you can get out of a particular, whether it's qualitative or quantitative, um, and what you can reasonably Extrapolate from it, right? What reasonable conclusions might you be able to come from it? Then you're not really doing the research right. It's not. It's not quite right. So when you think about, you know, the ideal situations for which you'd like to deploy a survey, so are there certain characteristics where it's like, look, when you have this type of thing, that's going to tend. You're going to want to tend to do a survey, or you're going to even want to tend to do this type of survey.
2: Yeah, I think when somebody uh, at Slack comes comes to me or comes to Ashley or somebody else that runs surveys for a living, the first question that I respond to them with is like, do we actually need to run a survey? Because you want to be really conscious. Surveys are a big ask of your customers and users, and you want to be conscious of their time and resources. And so if you don't need to ask a survey because you can get the data through through another technique, then like, let's explore that first. And I think it's really easy to fall into the trap of like, I can quickly spin up a survey, so let me just ask some users and then I'll get some data back. And then, you know, fast forward a week or two, I have a deck to share with my stakeholders and then I can wash my hands and say it's been done. But that's not really setting anybody up for up for success in terms of answering the question really effectively. I think as a researcher, it's on you to think about what is like the pre-work that I can do to really be thoughtful about the design of the, of this study, whether or not that's ultimately gonna End up in administering a survey or not. And so for us in practice, what that means is like looking really carefully about our usage data and making sure we understand what's happening in our data warehouse. And if there are patterns there that can speak to the broader question, like let's start there. And then maybe that's sufficient sometimes, or at least it'll dictate and influence how we're going to design the survey itself.
1: Yeah, completely agree with all of those points. Um, I think another thing that's really important is like people often want to do surveys to either explore like fun facts or um, you know reinforce a, a pre-existing idea that they have and i always try to push the stakeholders that i work with like if there's not a decision that's being made based on this survey or if it's not going to change our behavior maybe let's really reconsider whether a survey is the right tool to use to answer this question because You know, Alec, to your point at the beginning, like there's a lot of survey fatigue and people are getting it from like all angles. So if we can decrease that kind of survey pressure on people, let's just use it when we really have to.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One other thing that I think uh, is a little bit under discussed too when it comes to surveys, that's quite different from a lot of qualitative research. I mean, generally speaking, when we talk about qualitative research analysis, Nine times out of ten, we're throwing sticky notes on a whiteboard, either literally or figuratively, right? And like that's you know that's how we analyze a lot of qualitative stuff, for better or for worse. That's not necessarily the case when it comes to like quantitative data, right? There's all types of different analytical tools that you have to make sense of stuff. You know, actually, when you when you get uh, when you run a survey and you're looking, you get the data back. How do you decide how to process it, refine it, make sense of it? And what kind of tools are in your toolkit?
1: Yeah. Well, one of the things that I think is always really helpful to do and kind of prevents you as a researcher from going on a like wild (laughs) goose chase in the data is write up a pre-analysis plan um, before you you actually start any analysis and try to be very hypothesis driven in how you approach your research. I think that's actually something that really applies to both quantitative and qualitative research, is just you know, let's not go in here with a preconceived notion of what we're going to find. But, you know, if we did the survey with a particular goal in mind, if you were like, we're following step one, then step two in doing the actual data collection and analysis should flow from that and say like, okay, we said we were going to answer X. So let's now take a look at X. Um, And in terms of like the tooling that we use to take a look at that at Slack, you know, we use a lot of R in doing our survey analysis. But you know, and that's a like statistical programming language, but there's no reason that you can't do a lot of like very basic analysis in Excel. And honestly, sometimes I think that the most powerful analysis is really the simplest things. So things like basic cross tabs, like what is this main you know variable that we're looking at by you know one other var- variable. So like, what is our consumer uh, like customer happiness by? Like the type of user they are, like that's a very simple table to create and just tells you a lot without really getting very complicated.
0: Uh, I I think your your point about the pre-analysis is so so important. I mean, in the on the qual stuff, it's pretty much the root cause of all qualitative analysis paralysis. Right? <laughs> they go and they we go and interview ten people for an hour each, and you have like just books worth of notes, and they're you know like I don't know how to make sense of well. <laughs> You didn't have any ideas about what you were looking for, or how you were going to make sense of it. And before, you like, now you have just tons and tons of noise and you have no way to pull it out. So it's really interesting that that translates over to the quant side as well. So, so let's, let's actually briefly just touch on your talk a little bit. So you have this really interesting talk that's almost like a story, right? Which is how we make sense of changes of work because of the pandemic. Obviously, we had this huge shock to the system. And I think 99% of people, when they, if they were to go about a project of trying to make sense of like how work has changed and whatnot, they would go right for interviews because it just intuitively, they're like, this is the way you would have to learn that. But in actuality, you, you did a ton of quantitative work here with surveys and whatnot. And you pulled out a lot of really deep and rich insights through that process. Can you just tell me a little bit about the project? Like, how did it spin up? How long did it take? What kind of stuff did you do? What did it look like? Lucas, I'll go, I'll go to you first.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he was there when it started, so that might be better.
2: <laughs> so, this kind of goes the story of the project starts with working really closely with stakeholders. Like, this is not a project that I spun up in isolation, or even members of the research analytics team at Slack spun up on our own. Like, this was a very collaborative idea before it even became a project. A research project, much less a survey that was being fielded and then repeated over time. So from the very beginning, this is a conversation that stemmed from ideas that we had with our stakeholders, both internally and externally. And there was just a ton of questions. You know, if we put ourselves back in the mindset of early summer 2020, we're like, okay, this is not just going to be like a blip on the radar. Like this pandemic is a real shock, as you put it, Alec. And it's going to be here to stay. And we need to understand what's happening both right now, but also moving forward. And sort of in that conversation with our stakeholders and amongst ourselves on the team, we, we thought, okay, how can we actually answer this question? And for us, turning to a survey made the most sense because we had lots of goals, but two, two big ones. One is understanding things in as close to real time as possible. And then two, understanding all the variation in in the world that's occurring around us, right? So like things are shifting at that point and even today are shifting very rapidly. So like if we do a big study and then come back in six to 12 months, like too much time will have passed because things will be very different six months from the time we started the study. So we wanted to have the ability to move really quickly and get a pulse on sort of the state of the world as quickly as possible. And then two, we understood that like if you are a single mom with kids at home, working during the pandemic is a very different experience than if you are a twenty five year old who's living with roommates with no kids or no caretaking responsibilities. It's also different if you're a white male than uh, a black female or an Asian male versus um, a, a a non-English speaker, for example. so like all of these things. We realize are going to influence how people are experiencing this pandemic, both that moment and then also their plans moving forward. And we thought, okay, what's the best way to understand that variation and do it in, in as close to real time as possible? Well, I think a survey makes the most sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, when when you explain it like that, it's interesting that, and I think there's probably some kind of cognitive bias here where you know a lot of researchers are they going to ask answer that question. They go to the thing that's most comfortable, which for most people is probably interviews, even though that's maybe not the right approach here. But it's really fascinating because I think one thing when we were talking that you mentioned was like that concept of the, the vast variation and there's so many different subgroups. You don't even know what those subgroups necessarily are when you start. So it's really neat. And, and as you go through this, this story, there's going to be a lot of lessons for um, folks who might be willing to give surveys a second chance and make it more of a part of their practice.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think just like the scope of, of the project is something that we could never feasibly do, you know, through interviews. <laughs> I mean, it's also, I don't know if Lucas mentioned, it's like a global survey. So there's even that element of we're talking wow. to people in Japan and Germany and us, well, maybe not, I, I forget our country list, but <laughs> places where, you know, we, physically like couldn't even speak to the people that work in those places. And they through the whole timeline of COVID have had oftentimes really different experiences just between their like government policies. And it's so interesting in the data that you can like see when different waves hit different countries and and how people's like, kind of workplace satisfaction scores and things like that react in real time. So, um, just having, that's that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. So having that depth and breadth is just something that you wouldn't be able to do. Um, or it would be extremely difficult, um, in a qualitative setting.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm I'm pumped. This is gonna be fun. I'm hoping that it's not too painful for me to, to watch how, how you do this stuff properly and, and reflect on past projects, uh, <laughs> thinking about how I could have done stuff better. But I, but I am excited to get better at this nonetheless and, and
1: hear the story of, of
0: how y'all figured out how work was changing throughout the pandemic using very, very powerful survey science.
1: Cool. Well, we're excited to put the presentation together and, and do it.
2: Yep.
0: Awesome. Well, uh folks, if you wanna if you want to take this in live, you can do it in one of two ways. Uh, you can watch online for free. Uh if you go and register for a free online ticket at uxrconference.com, that's right, zero charge. We don't even want to know your credit card numbers. We don't care. Or even better, you can come in person and hang out with Ashley and Lucas. I know I will. Uh, in Brooklyn, New York. We've got about a few hundred spots available. So if you want to come and grab a ticket. Same place, uricstarconference.com. It's going to be a lot of fun for those of you that are comfortable and ready to be hanging out in person again. I know I certainly am. So uh, Lucas and Ashley, thank you so much for joining me. This was a ton of fun and I can't wait to hear your talk in just a few weeks time. Thank you. Thank you. All right. See y'all next time.